from the letter of the Romans. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen, church. Well, let's take a seat together and turn to the passage that was just read. Thank you for that, Alan. Thank you for that, worship team. We're studying the book of Romans, and we find ourselves today in Romans 12, verses 14 through 21, in a difficult passage. Honestly, we're all going to get convicted today, so just get ready. And you know, when you think about our Savior, Jesus Christ, you think about what he said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's Jesus hanging on the cross, dying on our behalf. And he says about these wicked people who are crucifying him, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And there's something similar that happens in the book of Acts. The early church martyr Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He was stoned to death by a group of Jewish leaders. And his last words before he died were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And this morning you might think, you know, boy, Pastor Tony, I'm glad God doesn't require that of us. I'm glad we can just stand at a distance and admire Stephen, admire Jesus, admire even Paul for what they do and how they love their enemies. I'm so glad he doesn't require that of us. But doesn't he, though? Doesn't he? In Romans 12? Romans 12, 14 through 21 requires more of us than just admiration for Jesus or Stephen or Paul. It requires imitation. It requires us to love our enemies and to overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. Now, for those of you who might think, boy, I mean, that sounds kind of wussy, Pastor Tony. Loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, overcoming evil with good, that sounds kind of weak, well, let me just tell you that there's a word in here, a term that is a military term that is not evidence of weakness. Arguing against that, Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Everybody see that in verse 21? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That Greek word overcome is the word nikaio. And it's a military term. It has a military nuance to it. 
that means to conquer or to be victorious over. It's related to that word Nike, which means victory. Nike derives their, their brand from this word Nike, Nike. This word that means victory, and that's an appropriate word for a shoe company. Paul uses a variation of this word in Romans 8:37 when he says, In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul says that we're not just conquerors, we're not just victors, Nikaio. We are more than conquerors. We are super conquerors. Huper Nikaio. Through Christ Jesus who loved us and saved us. Now in Romans 12, Paul says that we, we conquer. Nikaio. We overcome. Not by picking up a sword and demolishing our enemies. We don't conquer that way, but instead by doing good instead of evil. But, but I, you know, I don't want you to miss that military nuance in that word. There's an aggressiveness to this that you've got to embrace. I'm overcoming evil with good. I'm aggressively forgiving people who hurt me. I'm aggressively seeking good. I'm not just passively sitting by and watching evil go on in this world. I'm, I'm in military mode even as, even as I seek to overcome, seek to conquer evil with good, and I'm not going to conquer evil with evil. I'm going to conquer evil with good. How do we do that, Pastor Tony? How do we conquer evil with good? Let's talk about that this morning. I'll give you four answers to this question. How does a believer conquer evil with good? Here's the first way that we do it. You can write this down in your notes. It's number one. We bless those who oppose us. We bless those who oppose us. Paul says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now this is, this is big boy stuff this morning, okay? So I hope, you, I hope you put on your big boy pants this morning when you came to church. This is tough. This is not easy. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse and, and by the way, as Paul's writing this to the church in Rome, he's not writing just theological or hypothetical abstractions. He's writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to people who live in the belly of the beast. They live in Rome, in the middle of the Roman Empire. And, and they, all, they know all about, the Roman church does, persecutors and persecution. They, all, they know all about that. The Roman church was all too familiar with opposition. And some of you this morning right now, you might say, well, Pastor Tony, I don't know anything about this. I don't have any persecutors in my life. I don't have anybody that opposes me ever. Everybody loves me, Pastor Tony. Careful now. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says, woe to you when all people speak well of you. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If everybody loves you and nobody opposes you, it might be because you lack the courage of conviction. And you know, that's not even helpful. In, it's not helpful for your children to say, you know, just be nice to everybody and everything will go great for you and everybody will love you. That's not true. That's definitely not true in the world that we live in now and the world that your children are going to inhabit in the days to come. Sometimes you do right, you love Jesus, you follow Jesus, and people hate you for that. 
because of your convictions, because of your faith, because of who you follow, what do we do about that? What do we do when we have enemies in this world? Well, Paul says we should do what he told the Roman church to do 2,000 years ago. We overcome evil with good. We overcome. We are victorious. We nikaio evil with good. And one of the ways that we do that is we bless those who persecute us. This word bless is the word eulageo in Greek. Eulageo. We get our English word eulogize from this word eulageo. Lageo means to speak. You means good. It means to speak good. We speak good about them. We bless them and we don't ever, ever curse them. We don't condemn them. We don't rain down nasty epithets on them. We don't ask God to bring disaster on them. We don't curse them. We bless them. Now, obviously, we're talking about the tongue here. We're talking about speech. And if, if we're going to obey Romans 12, 14, we've got to get a handle on our tongues. James says this in his epistle. You can read this on the screen. He says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the mouth, the same mouth, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And James makes it clear in his epistle that these tongues of ours that God has given us, they can be used for good and they can be used for evil. We can, we can use them to bless others. So instead of using our tongues to curse, we should use our tongues to bless. How do we do that? How do we bless those who persecute? How do we use our tongues to bless other people? Pastor Tony, well, we can pray for our enemies, right? Doesn't Jesus tell us to do that? We can pray and ask God to lead them to faith in Christ. We pray for those who persecute us and oppose us. Here's another way we can use our words to bless people. We can respond to rude words with kind words. We can respond to hateful speech with thoughtful speech. We can respond to nastiness with graciousness. If you've ever done that, that takes some doing. That's hard. That's big boy Christianity. That's doing something that other people don't do to you. When people gossip and slander and say evil about you, you refuse to return in kind. And you don't use the enemy's tactics to punish the enemy, your enemies, with your tongues. It's something actually that I struggle with quite a bit in the Christian world, just watching how Christians behave Because I feel like Christians, too often in our day, they surrender the moral high ground. And they they just use the same tactics of wicked people to attack other people. There's an old adage that goes like this. Y'all have probably heard this before. I've probably said this before. Whoever slings mud loses ground. Y'all ever heard that before? Instead of doing that, we should treat others the way that we want to be treated. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? We give people the benefit of the doubt. We foster conversation face-to-face and human being to human being. We don't get on social media and rant against people and treat them as less than human. I think that's a huge problem in our day-to-day. Because we, we go and with some semblance of anonymity, we say things that we would never say to a person's face, or at least I hope we wouldn't. Here's some other ways that we can bless those who persecute us. We can speak truth to them 
with grace. We can point them to Christ. You know what the most ennobling thing that we can do for our enemies? We can forgive them. We can forgive them when they harm us, when they hurt us. We can, we can forgive them when they insult us or demean us or deceive us or spread lies about us. Paul actually modeled this for us. And there was a time when Paul was arrested and he was taken in chains to Caesarea and he had to appear before this, this grandiose governor, a man named Felix. And Felix kept Paul incarcerated for two years in Caesarea. And I, I think it would be understandable to all of us if, if Paul was angry with this person, if Paul was vengeful towards this person. You know what Paul did for Felix and his wife, Drusilla, after he was in prison all that time? He preached the gospel to them. He didn't just eulogize them. He didn't just speak well of them. He evangelized them. He told them about Jesus. And then Festus, this other governor comes and he brings in this king Agrippa and Bernice, his wife. And you know what Paul does with them? He preaches the gospel to them too. And he takes this evil that's done to him and he says, I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm going to return good for evil. I'm going to share Christ with these people who don't know Christ, who don't know any better. And he models this for us. Conquering evil with good. Conquering evil with good. Now, let me say this. I need to say this, just a caveat for what we're talking about here. Does what Paul says here in verse 14, does this mean, Pastor Tony, that I have to stay in an abusive relationship, if I'm in an abusive relationship right now, does this mean, is that what that means to bless and not to curse? Let me be clear about that. Absolutely not. You're not blessing anyone by letting someone abuse you. Don't use this verse or this statement for, by Paul to to support that notion. Are there times when people need to leave a relationship because it becomes abusive? Yes, there is. Are there times when we need to seek justice through the government for a wrong done against us? Yes. And actually Romans 13 talks about the government and how the government can actually be used for good and to have laws in the land is good. We'll talk all about that in two weeks. So there are times when, yes, the best thing to do is leave, to stay at a distance. The goal here for Paul is not for you to stay in an abusive relationship or to just maintain abuse. It's to conquer evil with good. It's to not respond in kind when evil is done to you. It's to take the moral high ground as Christians and to do better than what human nature would have you do. That's what Paul's going for here in the church and also in the church's relationship with other people. And to that you might say, well, that's, that's tough stuff, Pastor Tony. Yes, and you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's keep reading. Write this down as number two. How else can we conquer evil with good? We also, we empathize with those around us. We empathize with those around us. Paul says in verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. One of my professors at Moody, Dr. Bill Thrasher, great lecturer, great writer, he's written several books. He, t he used to tell this story to us about his sons. And 
One time his son fell down, hurt himself pretty bad, and he just started to cry uncontrollably. And then the older brother showed up and just along with him just started crying uncontrollably too. And Dr. Thrasher showed up and he's like, no, no, stop that. You're going to make the problem worse. Don't cry. And the older brother was like, no, 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 dad, you don't understand. Weep with those who weep. That's what the Bible says. So all three of them just started weeping uncontrollably until they felt better together. You know what? I, that's a little silly illustration, but I'll just tell you, Christians, sometimes we're really bad at this, at weeping with those who weep. We like to offer people platitudes when they're going through painful things. We like to over-spiritualize people's pain. You know, someone just gets a, a diagnosis, a bad diagnosis, like cancer or whatever, and we, and we're, we immediately, God's going to use this for good. God's going to, Romans eight twenty eight. God's going to, yes, that's true, but that, not, that might not be the best counsel to that person in that moment. Just weep with those who weep. Just give that person a second to grieve what they're going through. You know, somebody loses a family member, a family member dies, and you know, sometimes Christians rush and say, well, you know, I guess God needed another angel. I don't even know what that means. That is ridiculous. Just be quiet and just, you know what Job's friends did best? Remember Job's friends? They showed up. When they started talking, they just went off the rails. The best thing that they do, did is they just sat with Job and they, they wept with him and they hurt with him. They empathized with what he was going through, and they suffered alongside of him. We need to do that better as Christians. You know, just as an example of that, Lynette Williams was here a few weeks ago, and, you know, she came to church, and she came to our prayer night. We prayed with her. She's dealing with stage four cancer right now. I mean, what do you even say? And I was so proud of our church. I was so proud of what I saw as people at Harvest Decatur wept with her and helped carry and her burdens and laughed with her when she laughed and just shared that with her. And we, we prayed, we cried out to God for her. God, please heal her. Please take away this cancer we did. But at the same time, we just wanted to walk a mile in her shoes and help her for a little while carry that burden, what she was going through. I remember when Sonia's mom was diagnosed, diagnosed with ALS. And there's such a temptation to come over you and so, some, you know, to, to try to reason that out. Well, this must have happened because this happened and then this happened. Well, you must have done something to make this happen and then this happened. There is no reasoning. There is no reasoning for that. Why do people get cancer and die? Why do people get ALS and die? Because this world is falling and people die. That's why. And you know what we needed to do with Sonia's mom? We just needed to, we just needed to hurt with her and cry with her and pray with her and listen to her while we could still listen to her. Talk. When people go through things like that, don't try to reason out their pain. Just weep with those who weep. Just hurt with them. And on the other side of that, this, this actually might be harder. Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. And, and that might be harder. You know why? 
I mean, it's easy to rejoice if you're like on the same team and the NCAA tournament and you win together and you're like, woohoo, we won. But what about when your buddy at work gets the job that you've been angling for? How do you rejoice with that person who's rejoicing in that moment? That's tough. What about when your roommate finds the love of her life and you've been waiting for that? How do you rejoice with those who rejoice in that moment? What about when your, your brother or your sister are uber successful and you're still waiting for that moment when you might be successful yourself? That's tough. That's tough to rejoice with those who rejoice. Christopher Ash says this. You can read this on the screen. I think this is really insightful. He said, it can be harder still to rejoice with those who rejoice than to weep with those who weep when we ourselves might have wished to have their happiness in a relationship, their success at work, their wealth, their health, their gifts, or their reputation. Why is this the case? Because our affections are naturally disordered so that we are relieved when others mourn and self-pitying when others rejoice. So that you might say, no, we're not that bad, are we, Pastor Tony? We're not that pathological. Aren't we, though, in our worst moments? And what Paul is saying here is, don't let that happen to you, Christians. Be better than that. Robert Mount says this. He says, God's will is that his children become a family where the joys of one become the joys of all and the pain of one is gladly shared by all the others. The Christian experience is not one person against the world, but one great family living out together the mandate to care for one another. Yes, Lord Jesus, make Harvest Decatur that kind of church. So rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who who are weeping. There's an old proverb that goes like this. Memorize this. The sorrow shared is but half a trouble. A joy that shared is a joy made double. How's that? Double the joys, half the sorrow and they're shared. That's the way that the church should be. Share each other's joys. Church family, share each other's joys and share each other's sorrows. Carry each other's burdens empathize with those around you. Write this down as well. Number three, how else do you conquer evil with good? We seek peace and pursue it. We seek peace and pursue it. Paul says this in verse six. Paul says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now this this is a tricky one. Listen up, Harvest. This is a tricky one. This is really tricky. Peace. Peace. Because Paul isn't just talking about believers here and peace within the church. He's actually talking about peace in the world with other people. And that's really, really difficult. And to be clear on that, Paul says this in verse 17. He says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. All people, not just the church, all people, as best you can. Verse 18, if possible, 
So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, with all people. Now, here's why this is tricky. Paul is not saying that we should just jettison truth for the sake of peace. Just, just jettison all of your conviction because peace has to reign. Peace has to be supreme. Paul, Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying we need to be absolutely rock solid in our convictions, absolutely unshakable in our understanding of what right and wrong is. Cling to what is right, abhor what is evil, right? He's already said that. He's saying, but at the same time we do that, we don't let go of our convictions. We are to be continual pursuers of peace with those who disagree with us or even hate us for our convictions. We're convictional, we hold fast to the truth, and we seek peace with all people as much as possible. You might say, that's impossible, Pastor Tony. I can't do that. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. And God has called us to the best of our ability to be peaceable and to be peacemakers. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the peacemakers. God wants us, if at all possible, to be at peace. In other words, your, your default mode should be to pursue peace, not war and conflict with those who disagree with you. I think this might be the most culturally relevant, most practical instruction that Paul gives us in this passage. Can I just disclose a little bit for you right now? Pastoral confession time. When I see people in our country right now that are forcing Christians to do things that go against their conscience when religious liberty is being taken away by Christians today in our world right now. Can I just be honest with you? That makes my blood boil. And I get angry. I get angry with those who want to trump religious liberty with sexual liberty. I get angry with sexual revolutionaries who are pursuing a destructive agenda in our country right now and want to abandon the 200-plus year history we have as a God-fearing nation. That makes me furious. And yet what does Paul say in verse 14? He says... Listen up, Tony. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. What does he say in verse 18? Listen up, Tony. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He doesn't say jettison your Christian convictions. He doesn't say acquiesce to the demands of those who want to impose their will on you. But he does say don't curse them. He does say seek peace and pursue it. Jesus said, likewise, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 5, 44. Listen, if, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to become a really mature Christian, can I just tell you, get to that place. Get to that place where you are absolutely rock solid in your convictions. Where you, where you will not give ground on the truth of God's word, and at the same time, you seek peace and pursue it with all men as far as it is possible for you. That is a mature Christian who can do that. 
And I want to get there. I want to be that kind of Christian. And I'm so thankful in verse 18 that Paul says, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Right? Aren't you glad that Paul said that? If possible. Because, I mean, let's, let's face it. Sometimes peace isn't possible. Sometimes it's not feasible. Some people refuse to live in peace with you. Some people refuse your waving of the white flag. They don't want peace with you. And let me just help you with that. You don't have to take responsibility for somebody else's actions. God is not going to hold you responsible for that. God is going to hold you responsible for your actions. You, as far as it depends on you, if possible for you, seek peace. Live peaceably with all. And I'll say this too. Sometimes peace requires you swallowing your pride and just being injured. (laughs) Right? Sometimes peace requires swallowing your pride and just being injured. I think that's why Paul says in verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Oftentimes pride is the enemy of peace. Oftentimes in marriage, pride is the enemy of peace, right? Two people are locked, locking horns in conflict, and they, they sacrifice the peace of their home, any prospect of tranquility in an argument, because they have to win, because they are the right one, because they won't acquiesce, because they won't allow themselves, maybe in one instance, to just be injured. And, and let it go for harmony in the home. They have to fight. They have to win. And that's not the way of the Christian. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility is key to peace. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't be in a hurry, church, to pridefully vindicate yourself. You know Why? Don't be in a hurry to pridefully vindicate yourself because you want to leave room for the wrath of God to do his thing. I'll give you an example of this, okay? I think I've shared this story before. Tommy Nelson tells a story about a man who was boarding a plane once. We'll just call this person Phil. Phil got on this plane and he got to his seat and he noticed that there was a man already sitting in his seat. And, and this man was very finely dressed. He had an Armani suit on. He was typing away on his laptop. And Phil told him very courteously, you know, this is my seat. You know, can you move? And the guy just ignored him, refused to move. So Phil was a little agitated at this point, as you would be too, and said, please, you know, this is my seat. Can you move on? And at this point now, Armani's suit guy starts to get belligerent with Phil. And says, I'm not moving. This is my seat. I'm staying here. And it becomes tense. And all of a sudden, the flight attendant knows what's going on. And she goes over to Phil. And they can't talk Armani suit guy into leaving his seat. So she says to him, hey, can you just have a seat over here? It's not that big a deal. You know, we're about to take off in a moment. Just, just let it go. So Phil says, okay, I'll do that. I'll swallow my pride. I'll go sit over here. Well, wouldn't you know it, just before the plane took off, a woman rushed onto the plane who was a standby passenger. And you need to know two things about this woman. First of all, she had a child with her, 
that came onto the plane. And then secondly, the only open seat on the whole plane was a seat right next to Armani Sukai. And so from the moment that this plane took off to the moment that it landed, this child was wailing and crying and being obnoxious and just annoying this guy. And Phil could see this from his seat and he enjoyed every moment of it. And then just as the plane was starting to land, this little child started to get really, really quiet. And this little girl started to change colors from white to yellow to green. And then just as the plane touched down, she unloaded her lunch all over Armani suit guy. All over his suit, all over his laptop. She just ralphed all over him. And of course, I mean, there was, there was cussing and yelling and all kinds of clamor. The, the, the flight attendant rushed over there, tried to clean this guy up. This guy was inconsolable. And as soon as the, they started deboarding the plane, this guy took off in a huff. He was angry. He was furious. Phil enjoyed every moment of this. And then as the plane was deporting, deboarding, as Phil was getting to the front of the plane, this, this flight attendant just kind of motioned to him, just hey, hang on for a second, just wait, wait there. He's like, okay, whatever. He goes over to a seat and then after everybody left the plane, this flight attendant shows up with a bottle of champagne and two glasses, and she fills up Phil's glass, she fills up her glass, and then together, cling, they toasted the justice of God on that plane. Praise God for bringing justice on this person. Write this down as number four. Here's a final point for you. Here's a reason we don't take vengeance into our own hands. We leave vengeance to the Lord. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19, Beloved, and there's a tenderness here with Paul's words. Beloved, because you are loved, because you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, because of that, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know what? Can I just tell you right now? I wish, I wish in life that everything worked out as brilliantly as how it happened on that plane. I wish that happened all the time. But that's really rare that you get to see that. I mean, I wish every, every time somebody cut in front of me and flipped me off, I wish an asteroid from heaven would just come down and obliterate that car. Instantaneous justice. Wouldn't that be great? Careful what you wish for. But I'll just tell you, more often than not, that's not what happens. Most of the time, life's not like that. And there are evils perpetrated against us in this world, and we've got to learn to wait for God's reckoning in his own time. And that's really difficult. You know, there's these movies that circulate. I see them all the time. I'll call them vigilante justice movies. People love these movies. Movies like Death Wish with Charles Bronson. Movies like Taken with Liam Neeson. Movies like The Equalizer with Denzel Washington. 
There's even a movie out there called Vengeance is Mine. I'm not making that up. Vengeance is Mine, obviously making an ironic reference to what Paul is saying here in Romans 12. And people, people love these movies. I think they love the movies where everyday people take the law into their own hands and evil people in this world get their comeuppance. We love that. Now here's the problem with that. The problem with vigilantism as a mindset is that our thirst for vengeance as, as humans is never truly satisfied. And then we become the worst versions of ourselves trying to eliminate evil with evil. And that doesn't work. And oftentimes it's not just, you know, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. It's more than a tooth for a tooth. It's more than an eye for an eye. Our vengeance gets out of control. I'll give you a perfect example of this. From the Bible, from the Old Testament. Some of you might remember in the book of Genesis, Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. He also had a daughter named Dinah. And Donner, Dinah was was taken advantage of by a man named Shechem. And it was, it was a great evil perpetrated against her and against Jacob and his whole family. Well, Dinah's brothers, Levi and Simeon, were furious about this. And so they go on a killing rampage and they kill all of Shechem's family. Not just Shechem, but everybody in his family. And it's just like this bloodlust that gets out of control. And the punishment does not fit the crime. It goes way beyond what's even just. And when, when Jacob finds out about it, he's, he's furious. And he says, you've made me a stink to the inhabitants of the land. Later, when he's prophesying over his children, Jacob, he actually says about Levi and Simeon, you, you guys are violent people, violent boys. And he passes over them. And the place of blessing goes to their younger brother, Judah, in Genesis 49. We're not good at human beings at taking vengeance. We go too far. It gets the, the, we can't conquer evil with evil. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament. There's another story where a man named David conquered evil with good. If you read in 1 Samuel, David is pursued by the wicked King Saul for a myriad of reasons. King Saul doesn't like him. He's jealous of him. David is now the anointed king, and Saul's trying to retain his kingdom. It's all a very sad state of affairs. And as Saul is pursuing David in the Judean wilderness... On two separate occasions, David sneaks up on Saul and he has an opportunity to take his life and he doesn't do it. Even though he's egged on by some of his friends. Like, take his life, this is your opportunity. God's given you a chance, take him. And David says no. And there's actually a moment where he cuts off the corner of the king's robe. And when he shows it to Saul, Saul is convicted at his own evil because the show because of the show of David's mercy in that moment it hits him like a ton of bricks what he's done paul says this in romans 12 verse 19 he says beloved never avenge yourself but leave it to the wrath of god for it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord by the way paul he's quoting the book of deuteronomy right there deuteronomy 32 verse 35 you might say, yeah, yeah, vengeance. That's an Old Testament thing. We live in the New Testament. We don't actually know. No, no, no. No, even in the Old Testament, God would tell us, vengeance is mine. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. Leave it for God. It was a God thing. God is the one who can righteously judge the world, not us. We make horrible judges. We really do. Humans can't regulate vengeance properly. Paul says instead, and this is where you overcome evil with good. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, Feed him. 
if he is thirsty, giving him something to drink. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Pray for your enemies, love your enemies. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In the Old, Old Testament world, let me just explain that metaphor. Heaping burning coals on the head, that was code for feelings of shame and remorse. That's what Saul felt when David showed him that, that cut of his robe that he had taken. He, he felt remorse. He felt, felt shame. It's like burning coals heaped upon your head. And, and I'll say too, that's the best case scenario in a situation like that. You lead a person to repentance. Your goodness for their evil, you're returning evil for good, best case scenario that leads to repentance, that leads to faith in Christ. That leads to somebody saying, why can you do that? Why are you like that as a Christian? How is this even possible? Nobody does this in this world. And you can say, I'll tell you why it's possible, because Jesus Christ is my Savior. That's why it's possible. F.F. Bruce, he says this, he says, treat your enemy kindly. For that may make him ashamed and lead to his repentance. The best way to get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. Amen. And so overcome evil with good. In his sermon, Loving Your Enemies, Martin Luther King Jr. said, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And as Christians, we should seek that which is redemptive, not vindictive. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Do you know what Jesus meant by that? Any of y'all struggled with that before, turning the other cheek? What does that mean? Well, to turn the other cheek is, is actually an offer of friendship to another person. When they hurt you or when they insult, you know, by the way, just slapping somebody in the cheek, that's, that's not like an act of war. Even in our day, I mean, there's no MMA people out there saying, if you really want to incapacitate somebody, you really want to take someone down, you, ah, you slap them in the face really hard. Nobody does that. And nobody did that in Jesus' day. It's not an act of war. It's an insult. You slap somebody in the face. In the Hebrew world, world to be face-to-face -face with somebody is an act of friendship, of relationship. You touch somebody's face as an act of kindness. You kiss somebody on the cheek as an act of friendship. When you slap somebody on the cheek, what that is, is that is an insult. I insult you. You're not worthy of me. I hate you. And when you, somebody does that to you and you turn the other cheek, what Jesus is saying there is that you're absorbing the blow of what they're doing and you are offering them back friendship. You're not just going to sit there and take it on the same cheek. You're instead, you're returning good for evil. You're saying, I, I'm offering you a chance, even though you insulted me, to be friends. Here's my face. Here's my vulnerability. Here's a chance for us to know each other and love each other. You offer them friendship. That's how you overcome evil with good. Speaking of which, I've been reading a book this week. This book is absolutely wrecking 
emotionally. It's a book by Anthony Thompson called Called to Forgive. I think one of the greatest things that we can do in this world as Christians is forgive. Forgive great wrong done to us because we have been forgiven. And, and I'll just tell you, if, if you struggle with that, if you struggle with forgiveness, if you're a grudge holder, if you're someone who likes to watch vigilante movies and fantasize about the downfall of people who hurt you, read this book and you will be ashamed of yourself. Anthony Thompson is a pastor and his wife was brutally murdered along with eight others by the white supremacist Dylan Roof during a Bible study at church at the Emmanuel AME congregation in Charleston, South Carolina. And Thompson talks in that book about the agony that he went through in dealing with that injustice and how God led him through a process of healing and forgiveness. And Thompson says this. He says, some people feel that forgiving someone is like letting them off the hook for what they did. He said, in retrospect, forgiving, forgiving Dylan, Dylan Roof, was letting me off the hook. It freed me of the burdens of anger, distraught, and despair. It was the beginning of healing, peace, and the ability to move forward in my life. Some people may think that revenge is sweet. But in Romans twelve seventeen, it says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. The more you plot and wish them harm, the more harm you bring into your own life. The more you hold on to your anger, the more miserable your life will be. Thompson says this also. He says, people now ask me the same question. How do you forgive Dylan Roof for killing your wife, Myra, and eight of her friends in cold blood? Such an unimaginably horrific crime. As they stood praying in Emmanuel AME Church, my answer is always the same. I choose to forgive the racist killer because I believe and trust God's word when he tells me that vengeance is his to repay, not mine. I can't tell you how powerful that is in our day. I can't tell you how powerful that is in this world that constantly calls out for retaliation and never offers forgiveness. That is the world that we live in. And I admire Anthony Thompson, not just because he forgave this great crime committed against him. I admire him because he refuses to see the moral high ground. He's going to do like Christ. He's going to do like Christ, and he's not going to enter into the world of revenge and bloodshed and getting back at people who hurt him. That is a high calling. He's a Christian, and he's conquering evil with good, and he's leaving vengeance to the Lord. I remember when that shooter in Sutherland Springs, Texas, he went into a church, and he killed 26 people in 2017 in a church. A year later, the church had a memorial service for those congregants who died, and the church had this message placed on the marquee outside of the church that day. I don't know if you can read that, but it says, Evil did not win. 
Evil did not win. How does that make sense in this world unless you understand the gospel? How can you say that in a world like this unless you understand the gospel, unless you understand that this world is broken and Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins and Jesus Christ is coming back and he's going to set everything straight and no sin will go unpunished. And where do people like Anthony Thompson get their strength to forgive Dylan Roof? Where do people like Corey Ten Boone get the strength to forgive Nazi prison guards who brutalized her and led to the premature death of her sister and her father? Where do people learn how to forgive like that? How do people have the strength to forgive like that? I'll tell you what, that strength doesn't come when we look inside and we try to access the goodness of the human spirit. That, that's not found here. You know where the strength to forgive is found? You know where that power is found? It's found at a hill called Golgotha where the greatest injustice in human history was perpetrated against the Son of God. We, the wicked human beings that he created, put him to death and watched him suffer and bleed and be brutalized and crucified. And as he hung there dying, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he says in his word, to us, his followers. Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Here's the reason we can forgive. Here's the reason that we can love our enemies. Here's how we conquer evil with good. The reality is this. We understand theologically, I would say even viscerally, that every sin that is ever committed in this world will be punished. Every sin. Nobody gets away with evil. Nobody. Every sin in this world, including your sin and my sin, will be punished. Here's the question. Let me put a past tense or a future tense on that. Either your sin has been punished at the cross of Jesus Christ, or it will be punished forever in eternity in the lake of fire. Every sin must be punished. And Jesus Christ, in his love for us, he went to Calvary, he went to the cross, he died a gruesome death on the cross so that your sin and my sin might be paid for, might be punished. And he absorbed the wrath of God into himself so that we can escape it. That's a good way to close this message right now. Good Friday is this Friday. Let me ask you, Harvest, it's Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago. Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey to die a gruesome death for our sin. Your sin 
either past tense or future tense. Your sin has been punished or it will be punished. Jesus Christ either took your punishment for you on the cross or you will suffer for eternity in the lake of fire as payment for your sin. Has your sin been punished? If you're unclear about that, let me be crystal clear right now. Everybody listen. Everybody at home right now, listen in. The only way that your sin can be punished and forgiven is through faith in Jesus Christ. Believing his death on a cross, that that death paid for your sin, and that his resurrection from the grave conquered death forever. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ and had your sins punished and forgiven? It's the only way to be saved. Pray with me. Let's bow our heads right now. Jesus overcame evil with good. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, took on human flesh, surrendered himself over to man, to be punished and brutalized and crucified on a cross for your sin. Do you believe that there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved? Jesus Christ did that for you. He did that for you. And your job is not to work to earn salvation. Your job is not to be worthy of it by any good deeds that you do. Your job, Harvest Decatur, is faith. Your job is repentance. to say before Almighty God, Lord, I can't save myself. I'm a sinner. My sins deserve to be punished. I receive the free gift of eternal life that Jesus offers me. I receive the punishment and the forgiveness of my sins offered by Jesus Christ, my Savior. And if you haven't done that before, anybody listening right now, why not make Palm Sunday 2021 a day of salvation? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and be saved.
Lord Jesus, most of us in this room are saved. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been punished already. We've been redeemed. And Lord, in love for you, in obedience to you, we want to live lives that are different before the world. We want to overcome evil with good. We want to be men and women that live peaceably with others. Holy Spirit, help us with that. Help us to overcome evil with good. Help us to conquer evil with good. Let's just stay quiet for a moment longer if we could. I think one of the deepest struggles in a Christian's life is the struggle to forgive. So I ask the Holy Spirit right now, if there's any person in this room who needs to do the hard work of forgiveness, Maybe you need to forgive another person. Maybe you need to ask another person to forgive you for something you've done. Would you be open to the Spirit's prodding right now? Ask the Lord right now, Lord, who do I need to forgive? Who do I need to seek forgiveness from? God, help us to be men and women of forgiveness. Help us to be men and women who overcome evil with good. You do that work in our midst. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.